and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. Today's headline is Cedar Rapids Seeks Community-Oriented Leader as New Police Chief After Meeting Four Candidates. In Cedar Rapids' search for a new police chief, some residents say they're looking for a respected leader who focuses on community policing and fosters a police culture that promotes equity and trust among all citizens. Residents have the opportunity to speak one-on-one Wednesday night with all four candidates. These candidates are the four finalists from a pool of 17 applicants. City Manager Jeff Pomerantz, with the consent of the City Council, will make a decision soon on which candidate will succeed Wayne German, who retired from the role last April after signing a severance agreement. The department now is being run by Tom Jonker, the Deputy Chief, who was appointed Interim Chief until a replacement for German is named. Three finalists for the, the job Jennifer Burkhofer, Jeff Coday, and David Dostel participated in media interviews before Wednesday's event. Tom Witten, Chief Deputy for the El Paso County Sheriff's Office in Texas, declined media interviews. Burkhofer, 43, a lieutenant at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Omaha, said she has experience in community services and was attracted to this position for its focus on police being engaged with the community. She said she would want to focus on transparency and communication in her approach to the role. And it seems the police department has done that well so far, she said. From her work with road patrol, administrative services, and community services, Burkhofer said she could offer forward mobility on community policing. Coday, 49, a captain at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department in Nevada, said his overall vision for the police department and the community is to keep the community safe, reduce and prevent violent crime, and promote officer wellness and transparency. Dostal, 56, captain in the Administrative Operations Division of the Cedar Rapids Police Department, said he would like to expand the department's Community Service Division. There is a Community Outreach Sergeant, Jen Roberts, but he would like to create an even more in-depth relationship within the community. Linda Seeger, a resident who has served on the Police Chief Advisory Board, said the bar is quite high for the person chosen to succeed German. She said she wants someone who won't bend under pressure from bosses and who will stand by officers but not tolerate lying. Anthony Arrington, a member of the Advocates for Social Justice and owner of Top rank consulting service, said it is important that the next chief be able to police in underserved communities and build relations with everyone from a church minister to a perceived drug addict. They should truly focus on community policing beyond a surface-level way. Arrington, who does not support school resource officers being deployed in schools, like Cedar Rapids police officers are now at Kennedy, Washington, Jefferson, and Metro High Schools, and Polk Alternative School, said he would love to see the police department create a relationship with the school district where there is a 
curriculum built and designed to grow officers internally from the community. Overall, diversifying the department and increasing cultural awareness are top opportunities he sees for growth. He said the department will face a challenge navigating efforts to make reforms such as decriminalizing marijuana in a political environment that affects law enforcement agencies' ability to make progress. Community partnerships such as working with Foundation to Crisis Services to provide mental health crisis support are key to making this sure the city does not rely on the police department to do the task of social workers, he said. Monica Vallejo, a member of the Police Citizens Review Board that was created after George Floyd's murder by Minneapolis police, said it is important that the department establish more programs that promote diversity and inclusion with all communities, African, Latino, LGBTQ, people with disabilities, she also is part of the community group that participated in candidate interviews. In our next article, Shive Hattery is hired to help guide next Cedar Rapids school facility plan. A locally based architectural and engineering firm promises to collaborate with the community to create a facility facility plan for the Cedar Rapids Community School District that will be met with enthusiasm and excitement. The Cedar Rapids School Board on Thursday evening unanimously approved an $850,000 agreement with Shive Hattery, a firm based in Cedar Rapids, to help guide planning to take a general obligation bond referendum to district voters, possibly in November 2025. The agreement comes three months after voters overwhelmingly said no to a $220 million bond issue for Cedar Rapids schools. School Operations Director Chad Schumacher told the Cedar Rapids School Board the need to reach the voters of the previous bond referendum is a key component to moving forward. Shive Hattery already dove into gathering voter data. We know that they're going to lead us to a successful physical plant and equipment levy and bond vote. In September, voters in the district will be asked to consider extending the PPEL for an additional 10 years. That's an existing capital projects fund for the purchase and improvement of grounds, construction, and remodeling of buildings, major equipment purchases, including technology. Under the agreement approved Thursday, Shive Hattery and other consultants would review existing research on the district's infrastructure, create a facility plan, engage the community, lend assistance in the bond campaign, and create conceptual plans of the school projects. The agreement is a result of the district requesting proposals from consulting firms for the general obligation bond efforts. A committee of 20 interviewed five firms that submitted proposals. School board members lauded the proposal made by Shive Hadry. Caitlin Byers, who is in her first term on the board after being elected in November, said she feels confident in the team's abilities. Board Vice President David Tominski said in community engagement is absolutely critical as the district considers a new facility plan. 
School Board member Nancy Humbles and President Cindy Gerlach said they appreciate the focus on students and learning. Shy- Greg Kantz Shive from Shive Hattery said they will start the process by mailing surveys to the almost 88,000 registered voters within the Cedar Rapids Community School District as a post-mortem on the failed bond. Voters will also will have a virtual option for feedback. Building trust starts by listening and giving people a voice, Kant said. A second survey will be sent out to residents early in 2025 to test the market, tell whether we're on track. It will be a barometer of what's to come. The community survey specialist that Shive Hattery will work with, School Perception, gets up to 20% of people responding to similar surveys, Kant said, which can lead to a good forecast on how voters will lean in future bond proposals. The agreement between Shive Hattery and the district also includes MA Plus Architecture, a firm based in Oklahoma that provides professional services in interior design, master planning, bond planning, and furniture selection for schools and other organizations. One of the architects on the project will be Gary Armbruster, a principal architect at MA Plus and one of only seven accredited learning environment planners in Oklahoma. Armbruster also was the only architect appointed to serve on the Oklahoma School Security Commission following the 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newton, Connecticut, where 20 students and six adults were killed. Also on the project is Shive Hattery education architect Michael Clean, who specializing in crime prevention through environmental design, a theory to prevent crime by designing a physical environment that positively influences human behavior. Akwe Nye, Shive Hattery's communication strategist, will assist in the project by building emotionally charged storytelling initiatives and campaigns that are information-based to boost engagement and enthusiasm and trust in the school district. Nye said, we're ultimately talking about massive change that comes with a lot of emotion. Larson Construction, a company based in Independence, also is included in the agreement between the school district and Shive Hattery to provide cost estimating for proposed projects. In more local news, a Cedar Rapid teen gets 17 years for shooting a man in the back. A 17-year-old from Cedar Rapids who shot another man in the back while the victim was painting his truck in 2022 was sentenced this week to 17 years in prison. Amare Knight has Anthony McCray, who was 16 at the time of the shooting and originally was charged with attempted murder, previously pleaded guilty to lesser charges of willful injury, going armed with intent and intimidation with a dangerous weapon, all felonies. He also pleaded to use of a dangerous weapon, an aggravated misdemeanor. Sixth Judicial District Judge Kevin McKeever on Tuesday ran the sentences consecutively for 17 years in prison. McCray shot Yadier Primero Marquis, 29, in his back without any words exchanged between the two in the 2200 block of C Street Southwest. 
Primero Marquis said he didn't know McCray. The bullet entered Primero Marquis's back and exited through his chest, according to a criminal complaint. He survived but had serious injuries from the forty caliber handgun, which was found in a safe during a police search of McCray's residence. Police identified McCray through witnesses and surveillance video, according to court documents. Investigators also found a shell casing at the scene. The gun was test-fired, and that casing matched the casing from the scene, police said. During the investigation, police developed a likely path McCray took walking to the scene and back to his residence. They used surve video surveillance and information from Cedar Rapids firefighters who were responding to a medical call nearby, according to a search affidavit. McCray admitted following the path seen by those on the scene, but denied shooting the victim. In Iowa news, some Iowa public worker unions gaming the system. A public employee's union could be nullified if its empl public employer, like the state, school board, or local government, fails to submit a list of workers eligible to vote in a recertification election under legislation advanced Wednesday by Republican lawmakers. The bill's manager said during a legislative hearing the measure is needed to plug a loophole in the state collective bargaining law by which public unions were avoiding required elections. But one Democratic critic called it union bust. From 2020 through 2022, the state did not receive information on union-eligible employees in more than 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified by a vote of its eligible workers, according to the Public Employment Relations Board, the state board that manages public employer worker relations. That means in 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified, no election was conducted, according to the board. Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer, said that typically happens when the public employer is certain a bargaining unit would recertify, has a good working relationship with the unit and its workers, and thus did not feel compelled to force the election. Senators Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, however, interprets it differently. Schultz said he believes some public employers are allowing unions to skip recertification elections to maintain harmony with the workers and the unions that represent them. Schultz said he believes that after State House Republicans in 2017 passed a state law that stripped public worker unions of most of their collective bargaining rights, some of who those bargaining units have been gaming the system. Schultz said his bill, Senate Study Bill 3158, would address that by decertifying a union if the employer fails to provide the list of eligible employees. I believe, and I think the data shows, that the majority, if not all, public employers who are not submitting the list are in sympathy with the union and not wanting to put them through a retention election, possibly because they know that the employees don't feel they need representation. So we have removed the motive for a sympathetic employer to not submit the list, Schultz said. 
the rate at which an eligible employee list was not provided to the state in a recertification election was not held fell to 26% in 2023, according to state data. Representatives of labor unions who spoke at the hearing on Schultz's proposal at the Iowa Capitol said that figure dropped after the law was tweaked through the rulemaking process by putting pressures on employers with hearings and penalties. Bolton called Schultz's proposal an attempt to break up public worker unions. Bolton noted that in the years since the 2017 state law change, public worker unions have voted to recertify unions at high rates. According to state figures, over the past four years, more than 700 bargaining units voted to recertify, while only 58 voted against recertification. Bolton said in a statement, but now Republicans are pushing Schultz's bill, which allows employers to cancel union elections before they ever even happen. The agenda is obvious. Eliminate workplace rights, limit wages and benefits, and bust unions. Schultz, after Wednesday's hearing, insisted his intention is not to break up public employee unions, but to ensure compliance with state law. He noted that, under the proposal, if an employer fails to submit the list of union-eligible workers, the bargaining unit can ask the state courts to compel the employer to comply. Representatives for labor organizations representing teachers, police officers, and firefighters were among those who spoke in opposition to the bill during the public comment period of Wednesday's hearing. Some expressed concern that a public employer could put a bargaining unit on a path to decertification by intentionally withholding the required list of union-eligible workers. Further headlines, illegal immigration bill moves forward. State courts would be permitted to order the deportation of immigrants arrested in Iowa while in the country illegal, and and local officials would be given legal immunity when assisting in immigration enforcement measures under a bill advanced in the Iowa Senate. Senate File 2211 would create a state crime for migrants who enter or re-enter the state illegally from another country and would give Iowa law enforcement authority to arrest undocumented immigrants in the state. It also allows state judges the option of ordering some migrants to return to their home country instead of pursuing prosecution. Officers and state agencies would be cleared to transport undocumented migrants to ports of entry to make sure they comply. If migrants refuse to comply with an order to return or those who were ordered to be removed after being convicted of felony could be charged with a Class C felony and face up to 10 years in prison and a $13,660 fine. Those whose removal followed being convicted of two or more misdemeanor drug crimes, crimes against a person or both, could be charged with a Class D felony, punishable by up to five years in prison and a $10,245 fine. 
law enforcement officers would not be allowed to arrest or detain an undocumented migrant on the grounds of a public or private school, place of worship, at a health care facility where a migrant is receiving medical treatment or those receiving a medical examination for sexual assault. Republican State Senators Lynn Evans of Aurelia and Jim Reichman of Montrose voted to advance the bill, with State Senator Janice Weiner, Democrat from Iowa City, opposed. The bill now is eligible for consideration by the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Weiner said Iowa's legal system is not set up and lacks the legal expertise to deal with immigration issues. I suggest rather than passing this bill, we call our federal senators and representatives and ask them to revive the failed border security deal. Evans voted to advance the bill, but said changes are needed to clean up some of the language. Immigrant rights organizations and Democrats voiced strong opposition to the bill, which would have major implications for migrants across the state and is certain to trigger lawsuits. They noted the bill is unconstitutional as immigration enforcement is a federal responsibility. Federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, have ruled that immigration laws can only be enforced by the federal government. Kenya Cerrone of Des Moines says it's going to instill fear and it's going to drive immigrant families that have been living here like mine for 30 years. Immigrants and refugees have helped sustain rural areas while domestic migration has drawn people away. In 2022, Iowa lost nearly 7,300 people to to domestic migration, but gained nearly 7,300 international migrants, according to U.S. Census data. Cerrone said, what we have in Iowa is mixed status families, comprised of both U.S. citizens and undocumented immigrants. What this bill will do is drive Iowans, U.S. citizen Iowans, out of the state in fear for their families' members that will be persecuted under this bill. She said the bill would also undo years' worth of work by Iowa law enforcement to build trust with Iowa immigrant communities to report crimes, identify issues, and establish mutual respect and communication. And... The next article, speakers decry the bill giving politicians more sway over libraries. Proposal to give city councils more authority over public libraries would bring partisan political decision-making into library operations, including book selection. Dozens of public library officials and supporters warned state lawmakers Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. The legislator who managed the bill during Thursday's hearing said his goal is not to address the selection of books, but instead to provide elected local officials with more authority over the spending of taxpayer dollars. Dozens of public library officials and supporters from across the state crammed into a small room in the Iowa Capitol to express their staunch opposition to the proposed legislation, which would eliminate the requirement that a city's voters approve any proposal to alter the composition, manner of selection, or charge of a library board, or its replacement. 
Instead, a city council would be able to hire a library director, use library funds for library projects and initiatives by passing an ordinance without voter approval. Librarians, library board members, and public library supporters warned lawmakers against the bill's potential impact of placing partisan political decision makers in charge of public libraries. Wade Dooley, who described himself as a sixth-generation farmer in Marshall County and chair of the Albion Library Board of Trustees, said, Our town has fewer than 500 people, so I come from a very rural area. This bill is a train wreck. It opens up all sorts of possibilities for very disastrous consequences if you get an activist city council that starts seesawing on what they believe for a library to be or not be. Our city council has barely any training to be a city council. Now you also want them to run a library. I'm sorry, but that's not a good idea. This bill should be squashed. None of the 19 people who spoke during the public comment period of Thursday's hearing spoke in favor of the bill, and no lobbying organization is registered in support of the bill, according to state lobbying records. Representative Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora, said he is not at all concerned about library book selection. He said some city leaders have contacted him with concerns over library board spending and council's inability to address that. He said, I have a stack of stories from city administrators and city councils that have nothing to do with content. Matter of fact, all of them say we don't care about the content in the library. The library board can take care of that. Nordman told reporters after the hearing, library boards essentially get full autonomy. None of them are elected and they're spending taxpayer dollars. Now, if a city wants to continue to allow them to do that, and they think they're doing a great job, then sure, Nordman said. But we have a lot of instances around the state where the city council feels very different on the way the library board is going. And, ultimately, the library board wasn't elected. The city council was. And so the buck stops with them when it comes to taxpayer dollars. They should have that authority. Nordman said he would be willing to consider an amendment that would give city councils more authority over library boards, but carve out content selection. Our next headline states, Bill would limit watershed authorities' power in Iowa. An Iowa House bill presented by the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship emphasizes the importance of soil health in the state. It also would handicap watershed management authorities, critics said. During a Thursday subcommittee hearing, Department of Agriculture officials led conversations about House Study Bill 674, which was crafted with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Chief among the concerns is how the legislation would affect Iowa's water management authorities. Agreements among cities, counties, and soil and water conservation districts to coordinate water quality improvement and flood mitigation efforts with landowners in watersheds. Iowa has around 30 watershed management authorities that cover more than 40% of the state. The new bill proposes changing the name Watershed Management Authority to Watershed Management Partnership. Kozak said the change would be easy for the organizations. 
The proposed legislation also limits water management authorities' ability to assess water quality in their watersheds instead of narrowing their duties to educating about flood risks. Any water quality projects the authorities work on would be limited to the practices included in the Nutrient Reduction Strategy or the Iowa DNR's Stormwater Management Manual. Any funding made available to the authorities would be solely designated for flood mitigation. When asked if any watershed management authorities had asked for or been consulted about these changes or had been dedicated any funding from the legislature in the past, the Ag Department legislative representatives said no. The bill also would insert numerous references to soil health into Iowa code. Other notable parts of the bill include establishing a prairie seed harvest program within the DNR to help with prairie restoration, eliminating a requirement for the Ag Department to implement a statewide farm management demonstration program, peeling a section of Iowa Code establishing the state's Watershed Planning Advisory Council, which is intended to review research and make recommendations for protecting water sources, and eliminating the state's Bluffland Protection Program and its revolving fund, which were enacted in 2015 to buy and protect Bluffland's along rivers. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 9, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Karen Kia, age 70 of Solon, died Tuesday, February 6, 2024, in her home from an apparent fatal cardiac event. As one might say, she never knew what hit her, peaceful and fast. A celebration of Karen's life will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. on Friday, March 22nd in the parking lot of Casey's General Store in Solon, South Location, where Karen has been so affectionately known as Casey's Karen for a number of years. Food and drink will be served as the Karen stories flow. Please come and share. In lieu of flowers, please support the Solon Food Pantry, as Karen knew this was so important to their community. Gay and Kia Funeral and Cremation Service is in charge of arrangements. James, also known as Jim Fisher, from Iowa City, age 89, longtime area businessman, auctioneer, and farmer, passed away Tuesday, February 6th at UIHC, downtown Iowa City. A visitation for family and friends will be held on Sunday, February 11th from 2 to 5 at Gay and Kia Funeral and Cremation Service. Private family interment services will take place at Memory Garden Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established in Jim's memory. James Keith Fisher was born October 1, 1934, on a farm near Riverside, Iowa, in Washington County. 
A few years after graduating from Riverside High School, Jim married Marilyn Moon on December 31, 1954. The couple and their family lived in Iowa City, where Jim was a realtor, auctioneer, and farmer. He had been involved in the Masonic Lodge and the Shriners for years. After Marilyn's death in 2001, Jim married Gloria Achenbach on August 14, 2004. Jim enjoyed much in his lifetime, including operating Fisher Auction Service with his three sons and family for 35 years. Then he returned back to the farm where he found great pride and purpose to pursue his passion for raising black Angus cattle. James, also known as Jim, Joseph Callahan. Jim Callahan of Cannon City, Colorado, died on February 4th following a long struggle with lung, with lung disease. He was 77 years old. James Joseph Callahan was born on October 10, 1946, at Mercy Hospital in Cedar Rapids. He attended Immaculate Conception Elementary School and graduated from Regis High School in Cedar Rapids in 1964. He received a B.S. degree in history from Iowa State University in 1968. After service in the U.S. Navy, he received a J.D. degree from the University of Iowa College of Law in 1974, and he was admitted to the Iowa Bar in that year. Following a short time in private law practice in Cedar Rapids, Jim moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado in 1975, where he was an editor and later editor-in-chief at Shepherd's McGraw-Hill, a law book publisher at that time. In 1985, he received an MBA degree in finance from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. He worked in financial management for the former ABEK Incorporated and taught college-level courses in business law and finance for several years. He later owned and operated his own small retail business. In the mid-90s, Jim briefly returned to Iowa where he owned and operated a family restaurant in West Union. He then returned to Colorado, settling in Cannon City where he lived for the rest of his life. He worked full-time then part-time in semi-retirement before finally retiring completely in 2007. No formal memorial service is planned at this time. For online condolences, please visit Holt familyfuneralhome.com. Diane K. Sutphin. Diane K. Sutphin, 81, of Walford, passed away Tuesday, February 6th at the Gardens of Cedar Rapids. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m., Monday, February 12th, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. The funeral service will be 11 a.m., Tuesday, February 13th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A live stream of the funeral service may be assessed, accessed on the Funeral Home website under the obituary for Diane Sutfin under the video tab starting at 11 a.m. Entombment, Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Diane was born on July 17, 1942, in Davenport, Iowa. She graduated from Newton High School. Diane was united in marriage to Richard Charles Sutphin on June 27, 1964, in Newton. 
She had worked in the city circulation department at the Cedar Rapids Gazette and as a professional at the college community and Norway schools. Diane was a member of New Disciples Church. She was a huge fan of Iowa Hawkeye wrestling and enjoyed traveling. Memorials may be directed to the Parkinson's Association. Online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Donald Buster Ray Pate, 63, of Hiawatha, died Tuesday, January 30th, at his home. Visitation will be held at 11 a.m., followed by services at 12 noon, Saturday, February 10th, at Tian Funeral Home. Burial will be at Dunkard Cemetery. Donald Ray Pate was born on March 30th, 1960, son of Paul Pate in City in Cedar Rapids. He graduated from Kennedy High School in 1979. On April 22, 1988, he was united in marriage to Lori King and referred to her as my queen from their first day to his last. Buster began working construction for his dad in high school and continued until 1989 when he started Pate's Construction, retiring in 2015 due to his health. Memorials may be directed to Definitely Dogs in Don's name. Online condolences can be left at tianfuneralhome.com. And now, on to sports. Examining the area regional brackets in Class 5A and 4A of girls' basketball. The postseason begins next Wednesday in both classes. The 2023 calendar year was, quite frankly, nothing special for area Class 5A girls' athletics. No area big school qualified for the state tournament in girls' basketball or softball or volleyball. With the new year, the question is whether and when that drought will end, possibly within the coming days. Tenth-ranked Cedar Rapids Prairie appears to be staring at a regional final showdown with number seven Cedar Falls. And if you're looking for a dark horse, consider number 14, Cedar Rapids Washington, a one-win club last season that has returned to respectability and could run into number two, but less than full-strength Davenport North in its regional final. Here's a synopsis on each 5A and 4A region that includes area teams in the wake of the brackets release last Wednesday. In Class 5A, the quarterfinals will be held February 14th, the semifinals February 17th, and the finals February 20th. In Region 2, at a win-loss record of 10-10, Washington doesn't resemble last year's 1-19 outfit. The Warriors have won four of their last five games, and with a young roster, their best days lie ahead. The Warriors host their semifinal game with Muscatine, and the winner gets a shot at number two Davenport North. But North is now without junior Journey Houston, an Iowa recruit who is out for the remainder of the season with a knee injury. That gives the Warriors a puncher's chance to reach Des Moines. In Region 6, number 6 Pleasant Valley is the defending state champion and the linchpin of this region. 
Iowa City High is the lone area team in this region, favored to win its quarterfinal with Davenport West, and takes its shot at Pleasant Valley in the semifinal. In Region 7, Prairie and Cedar Falls play tonight for the Mississippi Valley Conference Mississippi Division Championship, and there's another bid at stake, too. With one more set of rankings coming out, it's more than likely tonight's winner will host a probable regional final rematch on February 20th. Prairie does have a tricky semifinal against Linmar. In Region 8, the presumptive regional final matchup is an all-CIML affair between number 8 Ankeny and number 9 West Des Moines, West Des Moines Valley. If someone is going to play record to that scenario, it is surging, uh, surging Iowa City Liberty, which has four games in a row and faces Valley in a semifinal. In Class 4A, the quarterfinals will be February 14th, the semifinals February 17th, and the finals February 20th. In Region 1, top-ranked Clear Creek Amana got the treatment that a number one deserves. The Clippers are the only ranked team in the region and drew a bracket consisting mostly of Southeast Conference schools, headlined by Keokuk, the likely regional final foe. In Region 2, like Clear Creek Amana, number 2, Waverly Shell Rock, is 20-0. Unlike the Clippers, though, the Gohawks have a challenging path to Wells Fargo. The champion of the MBC Valley Division, number 14 Western Dubuque, is on the other side of the bracket, and the Bobcats have won eight games in a row. Western Dubuque is likely to face Decorah in a competitive semifinal. Region 5, this is a rare region with three ranked teams. Number 5 North Polk is pretty much a lock in the top bracket, with number 11 Marion projected to host number 12, McQuokita, in the bottom. The Cardinals have clinched a share of the River Valley Conference North Division crown, their first league title in 20 years. In Region 6, if Cedar Rapids Xavier is going to reach another state tournament, it would be the 16th in school history, it will take an extended road tour to get there. The Saints need three wins to reach Des Moines, and it starts at North Scott in Round 1. Then, they probably would have to beat number 10, DeWitt Central, and number 6, Mason City, in succession. Now we go on to the boys' state swimming meet. Linmar's Hudson Huberg said, This is the fun part of the high school boys' swimming season. The Lions sophomore was talking about the four-week stretch that begins with the conference meets in mid-January and concludes this weekend with the state meet. Our coach has prepared us very well for this, Huberg said. The Lions, fresh off a big win at last week's district meet, enter the state meet at number four in the power rankings. Defending champion Waukee is ranked first, just ahead of West Des Moines Valley and Bettendorf. Those three schools are expected to battle it out for the team title at the University of Iowa's Campus Recreation and Wellness Center. Preliminaries in the individual events will be held Friday, beginning at 5 p.m., with the consolation and championship finals set for 12.30 
p.m. on Saturday. KCRG at Channel 9.2 will provide live coverage of both the preliminaries and finals. The Lions finished sixth in last year's meet and have the potential to top that result. Linmar should score well in several events. Sophomore Parker Mako has the top qualifying team time in the 100-yard butterfly at 49.64 seconds and is second in the 100 breaststroke at 56.91 seconds. Hilberg, who finished third at state as a freshman in both the 50 and 100 freestyles, is again among the top qualifiers in those events. He is seated third in the 50 freestyle and fourth in the 100 freestyle. Seniors Luke Kelly and Mason Turner are four and five in the 500 freestyle as well. Iowa City High senior Joe Poliak will be looking to defend his title in the 200 individual medley. He pulled away in the final leg last season to win in 1 minute 48 seconds. He is the top seed in this year's race. Poliak was the state runner-up in the 100 breaststroke in 2023. His seed is fourth entering this year's meet. Iowa City West is fifth in the team power rankings and has the top qualifying time in the 200 medley relay. In college wrestling, Zach Glazier was destined to be a wrestler. At 19 and old, he's having the best season as an Iowa Hawkeye. The sport is in his blood with a father who wrestled in college and was a high school coach when he was born. His mother was an avid wrestling fan and supporter. Glazier parlayed that passion into patience to stay the course until he stepped in as the full-time 197-pound starter for Iowa this season. He has produced his best season, but faces his toughest task with Penn State's top-ranked and three-time NCAA champion Aaron Brooks. When number three Iowa hosts the number one Nittany Lions tonight at Carver Hawkeye Arena. It's the next match, Glazier said. It's what the coaches preach. One's not necessarily more important than another, but obviously there is added significance to this one. I'm looking to go out there, have fun, and enjoy what I do. Yeah, it's going to be a bigger test than I've had all season, but these are the type of matches that you want, that you look forward to. Glazier was a two-time state champion, three-time state finalist, and four-time state medalist for Albert Lee. He set the school record with 220 career victories. He was also a two-time junior national All-American in Fargo, North Dakota. Glazier owns a 19-0 record and is the Hawkeyes' lone, unbeaten full-time starter. He has more than doubled his win total from the last three seasons, filling in occasionally for NCAA finalist Jacob Warner during that time. Glazier is tied with 165-pound teammate Michael Caliendo for the team lead with 13 bonus point victories. Brooks is a challenger Glazier embraces. He welcomes the bout against one of the nation's top 
pound-for-pound wrestlers. Regardless of the outcome, the result will be a good gauge of how far Glazer has come and what needs to be improved in the season's final weeks. In some other news affecting our area, Summit wins on a local ordinance issue in North Dakota. North Dakota Monitor Summit Carbon Solutions and other pipeline companies scored a victory this week when the North Dakota Public Service Commission decided that the state rules preempt local ordinances on pipeline zoning issues. That decision paves the way for a rehearing on Summit's application for a pipeline permit in North Dakota, which the state's commission denied last year. The proposed pipeline would run through Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, and South Dakota before ending in North Dakota. Hearings in Iowa have concluded, and the Iowa Utilities Board is now charged with deciding whether the company is eligible for a permit and for eminent domain authority in the state, according to the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Summit has obtained easements for about three-quarters of its over 680-mile route in Iowa. North Dakota Public Service Commission Chair Randy Christman states, on local ordinances, which was changed in 2019, is clear. The approval of a route permit for a gas or liquid transmission facility automatically supersedes and preempts local land use or zoning regulations except for road use agreements. Wednesday's unanimous vote confirmed the Commission's position. At a hearing in December, attorneys for Emmons and Burlow counties in North Dakota argued that local ordinance should take precedence and that pipeline zoning rules passed in those counties are not unduly restrictive. Summit Carbon Solutions requested a decision on the preemption issue as it continues to seek a permit for the North Dakota portion of its pipeline route. Before 2019, the law said state rules may supersede local ordinances if the local ordinances are deemed unreasonably restrictive, Christmas said. Summit wants to lay about 350 miles of pipe in North Dakota to transport carbon dioxide emissions from ethanol plants in five states to underground storage areas in Mercer and Oliver, counties. North Dakota regulators last year denied Summit's pipeline siting application for that state. Summit has since proposed changes to its route around Bismarck, and an appeal is pending before the commission. Chrisman called the case file around the pipeline enormous and said 2,000 pages of filings had been added just in the last eight days. He said staff and commissioners need time to review those filings before more hearings can be set. Summit in 2021 said it planned to begin construction in 2023 and be operational by 2024, but it has yet to obtain the needed pipeline route permits. And finally, we have some heartfelt decisions. Organ donations are increasing in Iowa and nationwide. The night before Mother's Day 2018, Mike Meredith got a call telling him he needed to drive to the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics immediately. He was going to get a new heart. 
It had been two years and three months since Meredith barely survived multiple heart attacks, coding 13 times during a three-week period. He had been living with a left ventricular assist device, a machine that pumped his heart for him, but was on the wait list to receive a transplant. During the drive from his home in Kellogg to the hospital, he felt conflicted. He was excited to get the organ he needed, but he knew that the heart had belonged to somebody else who was gone now. Meredith said, I never could really pray for a heart because that meant somebody died. My thoughts the whole time were, there's a room right next to me where somebody's mourning, somebody's having a bad Mother's Day. Meredith, now 65, had his heart transplant at around 2 p.m. on Mother's Day, May 13, 2018. He was one of five people who received an organ donation from Christopher Lewis, a 28-year-old Cedar Rapids man who died on May 12, 2018, after he was hit by a car while riding his bike. Lewis also donated his lungs to a 43-year-old man, his liver to a 40-year-old man, one kidney to a 49-year-old man, and his other kidney to a 52-year-old man. Organ and tissue donations have been increasing across Iowa and nationwide. In 2023, 123 Iowans donated 350 organs and 1,027 donated tissue, according to a news release from the Iowa Donor Network. Each tissue donation benefits between 50 and 300 people. The 123 donors the network saw in 2023 is a 40% increase from 2019, and the 350 transplants is a 21% increase, according to the release. There are currently around 600 people in Iowa in need of an organ transplant, and more than 100,000 people nationwide. Some of the organs that are donated in Iowa, such as Christopher's heart, end up going to someone in the state, but many are sent elsewhere. Meredith said, I told Chris's parents I had a hard time with knowing their son died, and they said, you make sure you separate the two incidents. He was gone whether it gave you the heart or not. That helped me out a lot, he said. It was what he wanted. Chris signed up on his own at 16 years old. He'll always be a hero for that act. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.